It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is the Cork Today replay on C103. As we welcome you along to the uh, programme, John Paul, taking the calls this morning at 0818 103 103. If there's anything you want to share with us, you can also text our WhatsApp, the programme, to 086 103 103. And most of the papers today are picking up on the fact that state funding is now being sought to try to finance urgent security measures for all of our elected TDs and for all of our senators. The monies uh, will be used to subsidise any steps that's needed to guarantee that the politicians are safe. And this is safety advice that they're taking from Angarda Siakona. Now, obviously, the move is directly related to the incident that happened last week. And this was when the farmer threw bags of cow manure at the junior minister, Anne Rabbit, and he also threw manure at the Fine Gael TD, Kieran Cannon. It was a public meeting that was being held in County Galway. Some TDs, it seems, according to the papers today, already have panic buttons installed on their desks in their constituency uh, offices, though the vast majority do not. There's a very small number, but they've already decided that they were feeling unsafe in their constituency office. So they put in panic buttons So this. The new financial support will be extended to the protection of both the TDs homes and also to their offices. And it seems there was an email sent out to all elected members yesterday and in the uh, email it says arising from the security incident last week involving the two members of the Houses of the Oireachtas and Garda Siakona have been in contact to say that as per the advice given at security briefings for members last year if any member requires guidance on security he or she should liaise with their local crime prevention officer. The local crime prevention officer can arrange to have security reviews conducted at members' residence and offices and can then provide security and crime prevention advice and they can do that on a one-to-one basis. And the email then attached a document from the National Crime Prevention Office entitled Personal Security Advice for elected officials with the Irish Independent they have seen the advice uh, they were saying there's a special section on security at constituency clinics and constituency office offices uh, which of course are held by all uh, TDs now they're seen as places of unique vul- vulnerability I mean you think we only have to look across the water there was a knife a murder at a constituency clinic of a British MP and that happened last year and obviously that put fear 
into a lot of uh, politicians, not just in the UK, but also here in Ireland. And some of the, according to the paper, some of the advice that has been offered to to the our politicians and to our senators is that they they check their routes and they avoid areas where they feel uncomfortable driving through. They avoid empty carriages when using public transport. And listen to this one. They've been told to wear comfortable shoes in order to be able to move quickly. So I suppose saying to the ladies, have good shoes on you that you can run in in case you need to get away from a situation. They're advised to avoid leaving or returning home at exactly the same time every day and also avoid walking the same routes, parking in the same spots and holding clinics and meetings in the same place every week and to be street wise. Now the holding of the clinics is, is one that I could foresee most politicians hold their constituency clinics in the very same place at the very same time every week and local people get to know that if you want to go and see and sit down and chat face to face with your locally elected TD, you're going to know on a Wednesday his constituency office or her constituency office is is open at a certain time and welcoming visitors. So I don't know how they're going to get around that particular one. But when you know when you look at this and when you think about it, and you know particularly a lot of fear last week with what happened with the the bag of cow manure being flung at the two the junior minister and the the TD. And, you know, at the time there was a lot of talk about are we getting to the stage where our public representatives will not be so easily available to the general public? It's one of those unique things that we have in this country that you don't see in other countries. It isn't as easy in other countries to be actually actually able to get to sit across a desk and eyeball and, you know, put your concerns, put your worries, seek advice from your local public representative. And we've always had that very easy availability of our elected TDs and our elected councillors, uh, for example. But, you know, if we see more of this kind of antisocial behaviour, these kind of attacks on our public representatives, will we get to the stage where literally TDs will not be available to members of the general public. So because of that, they're now looking at that state funding may have to be sought to keep all of our TDs and senators safe. Your thoughts welcomed on that 0818 103 103. And some emails into the programme. One in particular I want to bring you because I like to bring you the good news stories as well. And this is somebody that doesn't want their name called out, which is uh, fine. But they're right. I want to give you a happy news story about my experience at Cork University Hospital's dialysis unit on just Sunday gone the 8th of January and you know you're thinking about last weekend and you think back to last week with the overcrowding that was going on at Cork University Hospital and most people were saying that we, we, we were all being advised not to go near an A&E department at any hospital but most people were in fear if they needed to be go to hospital would say that the, you know that they really didn't want to go with all of the negative um, press and publicity that was coming out of the overcrowding of the hospitals anyway back to the uh, email the nursing staff at the dialysis unit were outstanding in their care and compassion. Now, my brother normally drives for his dialysis every Wednesday and every Sunday. But last Sunday, he sustained a hapless heavy fall and I actually thought he had broken a rib. I contacted the nursing staff at the dialysis unit with my concerns and then I decided I would drop him to the dialysis unit. They got him reviewed 
x-rayed, ruled out any fracture and then went on to perform the dialysis, which is to say he gets twice weekly. And as everything ran so late, they then arranged a taxi to bring my brother home, which would save me having to go back into CUH at 1 a.m. in the morning to collect him. I cannot praise the whole service enough. Things are not all that at uh, CUH. And indeed, yeah, and like, how often do we hear that? Countless times we hear that, you know, that for people once they get into a bed and they get in for the treatment that they need, you know, the staff always go above and beyond. And in fairness, I think even when people have been crit- critical and criticising the accident and emergency department, be it the one at the Cork University Hospital, be it the one at, at the University Hospital in Limerick or indeed anywhere else around the country, Everyone always prefaced their comments by saying that the the nursing staff and the doctors that are on duty are all doing their very, very best, but they are just so stretched and so overworked and so overburdened. But everybody says once you can get into the system that the care and the treatment uh, is generally speaking above and beyond. So I'm not in any way surprised to hear about the caring staff at that dialysis unit at uh, CUH, who, of course, get to know their patients so well. I mean, if you're going in every single week, twice a week, in you're meeting up with the same nurses, you'll get to know people extremely well because you're up there on dialysis, you're up there for a number of hours and don't you know the chat and the banter uh, that goes on as well. But I thought that that was very compassionate of them. They could easily have said to your brother, well, ring your sister now and let her come and collect you. But instead, they organised a taxi to get them home. So to everybody at the dialysis unit at uh, CUH, uh, well done. And while we talk of dialysis, let us remember the only way that this sister's brother can get off dialysis. I don't know if he's on a, a transplant, an organ transplant list, but maybe he is. Don't forget to carry your organ donor card. With the HSC advising people to avoid the accident and emergency departments and to seek support instead from the likes of your GP, your community farm, pharmacist or your minor injury units. It came as a great shock to many to hear that the Bantry Minory Injury Unit was going to have to close yesterday due to a lack of staff. Fianna Fáil, Dáil Deputy Christopher O'Sullivan uh, described the situation in Bantry Hospital as utter madness and he joins me uh, this morning. Good morning to you Christopher. Good morning Patricia and look please with your permission if I could take this opportunity as, as many have done to extend my sympathies to, to you and John Paul and the entire team there at, uh, at C103 on the really sad passing of your um, fantastic colleague, uh, Paddy Palmer. Um, you know, he was he, he was much loved um, right throughout the county. And I think part of that is that Monday uh, supplement that you would do on your show, I remember. Um, driving When I was a councillor, we'd be driving up to uh, county council meetings on, on a Monday. And let's just put it this way, Patricia, you wouldn't always be necessarily... Um, looking forward to it uh, as as much as you, you you might think. So you'd be driving up, and Paddy would come on with his weekly sports slot um, with yourself, and it would just bring a smile to so many. You'd be covering, you know, tennis, golf, rugby, soccer, and of course his beloved GA. Um, and he always covered it with his own unique kind of roguish style. Um, and I, I I used to particularly love his GA uh, coverage when he would always find some anecdote or story about the individual who kicked the winning point or the captain and. You just find yourself, you know, you, your mood would change and all of a sudden you'd be looking forward to that council meeting because 
Paddy would have uh, put a smile on so many faces. Yeah, so I just want to take this th- opportunity thank to you, thank you. He, extend he somebody to yourself and, and to, to all the listeners out there and of course to, to his, his family as well. Yeah, who they're the ones, know, they're the ones who, will, who are really feeling uh, the pain. Yeah, he had a, a, a really a unique, a unique talent and as we, so many people said yesterday, his likes unfortunately we'll never see again for sure. He was just, he was a great guy, great, great guy. Absolutely. Absolutely, and well done as well to, to, to your team for the. It must have been difficult for you to do that tribute yesterday, but you, you did it, and it was um, it was it was really touching. So appreciate well. that, appreciate that. Okay, let's go back to yesterday and to uh, Bantry Hospital and the minor injury unit. This is a unit that is supposed to be open 365 days of the year. Is this the first time since it's opened that it was ever forced to close? Uh, to my knowledge, it, it is, and look, I think it's really important that that uh, listeners understand, and, and many of them will, what the local injury unit does, what it is. I mean, it is one of the the Bantry Hospital has many fantastic services, and I think the new local injury unit, which has been open for a while now, was officially opened by the Taoiseach um, towards the end of 2022. Um, it it provides an amazing service. It's walk in. It's seven days a week. Uh, it's from it should be from 8 a.m. to 7:30 p.m. Um, and and the the really important point about the local injury unit is that it's walking. You don't need to go to your GP first. You don't need to be referred by a GP. You can walk in, and it treats things like broken bones, sprains, burns. You know many of those day to day incidents that happen. Uh, so it's an absolute fantastic service, and you can imagine um, the pressure uh, that that takes off uh, the likes of CUH and the uh, A and E in CUH. It's an incredible service. In general, the waiting times when you get in there aren't long. You're, you're dealt with speedily and rapidly. And it's those, those type of services in our regional hospitals, I think, that we should be investing in, that we should be improving and that we should be protecting to ensure uh, that we don't see um, the situations that we've seen over, over, over the last few weeks. So I think it's, you know, I described it as unacceptable, as utter madness. I think in the context of what we've seen over the last few weeks where we've had record numbers of people on trolleys. We've had, you know, last week alone, I think there was one point there were 74 people uh, uh, on trolleys in, in CUH. In that context, it, it is crazy to think that in Bantry, in one of our uh, most fantastic hospitals, that you have a situation where the local injury unit is closed, even if it's for a day. Delighted to um, hear that it is back open and running uh, today. But yesterday, you can imagine the pressure that would have taken off the likes of CUH and the A&E there. So the HSC need to be held accountable for this and they need to ensure uh, that this type of situation doesn't arise again. Now, I, I know last week Bantry Hospital suspended visits and that was due to an, an infectious outbra- outbreak. Can we assume that some of the staff were out sick and, the, and that that added to problems yesterday? Look, my, my understanding is that in order to operate the local injury unit, you need three doctors of registrar level. Um, according to management, the management, as I've always found, whenever there's an issue at, at Bantry, whether it was the closure of the um, MAU in, in 2021, that was temporary closed. Remember, we covered that on your show yeah. as well. Or this local injury unit closure management have always been fantastic. If you pick up the phone, if you ask them the questions, they're always very forthcoming. Um, and what they've told me is that in order to run the LIU, you need three doctors at register level. In this instance, they'd only two available. Obviously, they wouldn't comment on why uh, one of the doctors wasn't available, and I think that's fair enough. It could have been for personal reasons. It could have been for health reasons. Whatever, we can speculate. But the point is that, you know, the, the, I've always said this, and, and of course, Patricia, as a government TD, there has to be some level of accountability with me, with the minister, with government. We can't shirk that. We can't run away from that. But in the context of a budget for the HSC, where, Lucy, in 2019, the HSC had a budget of uh, 16 million. That's increased 23 million uh, under this 
current government. Um, you know, there has to be accountability within management of the HSE, within senior management, to ensure that management and staff uh, of fantastic hospitals like Bantry have the resources available to, them, available to them to recruit and to put in place measures that if someone is sick, if someone is out for personal reasons or whatever reason that is, that the service remains top class, it remains open, and remains open to the public. And, as that, much there, as it and be. that there's a plan B. I mean, you very much are, are not pointing the finger of blame at the, the management at Bantry Hospital. I mean, is it, at the, is, it, is it to the HSC? Is that where you're pointing the finger of blame for this happening yesterday? <clears throat> it is, it is. And I can hear your listeners shouting at the radio saying, well, Christopher, you're, you're a government TD. And I absolutely accept that. And we can't shirk that. And there has to be oversight from government as well. But, I, you know, those figures that I mentioned are starting from 16 billion to 23 billion from 2019 to 2023. We need to start seeing uh, value for, for money in that. We need to start seeing the, the likes of the uh, local injury unit, the medical assessment unit at Bantry being shored up. Uh, you know, I would have concerns about the medical assessment unit at Bantry because, you know, it's such an important service. Again, it stops people being brought up. That, sorry, that wasn't, that wasn't affected yesterday, was it? That, that wasn't that affected opened, yesterday, yeah, which, okay. is, which is really important. That yeah. service was available. That's, that's a key service that was available. But that service is in, underpinned by the provision of an anaesthetist. The current anaesthetist there is near retirement. And mm. we, I, I will scream and shout at the HSE to ensure that that anesthesiology cover is provided to make sure that service is backed up. And that's an issue that, that we've been talking about and flagging for quite some time. That, that's, you know, that anaesthetist is, is going is, to and retire. It, and, it's still, and it's still not um, secured. It's still not pinned down. It's still not, um, we still haven't received the reassurances and the we basically we haven't recruited Patricia we haven't recruited the anaesthetists that needs to be put in place to ensure that that service is underpinned but outside the EMAU um, and you know my phone as you can imagine over Christmas time was hopping with with, with uh, experiences that people had with sick children sick um, elderly parents where they didn't want to be presenting to A&E and CUH they wanted to use those supplementary alternatives on the ground but unfortunately they're not resourced properly either so they may have for example, their first protocol would be their GP, but their GP would tell them that we can't take you until the middle of next week, for mm-hmm. example, in one situation that I had. So their next protocol may be South Dock in the out of hours. I had one gentleman who rang me who said they were on South Dock and waiting for their phone to be answered for up to seven hours. So I can totally understand. And, you know, I understand Stephen Donnelly's message and the message from the HSC to that if you're not seriously ill to uh, not come to the A&E and not present to the A&E. But if those supplementary options aren't available to you then i can completely understand why that gentleman was for example who had a, a sick child was on the brink of putting that child into the back of the car and bringing them up to up to cuh eventually the south dock out of hours office answered the call and that but was they avoided. Are, the south dock is swamped at the moment christopher i mean absolutely swamped they're swamped with people uh, additional who can't get a gp can't get registered with a GP. Their only option to access a GP service is to go without of hours. That was never what the South Dock was set up to do. No, but I think what we've what we've highlighted here in this conversation and the fact that the South, South, that the South Dock is swamped, the fact that it's taking uh, you know a week to get an appointment with your GP, even if you have a chest infection, and I know many um, people out there had perhaps elderly parents who had chest infection. It may not have been COVID. It may have been a chest infection that we know was going around this Christmas, and they were concerned. But they were being told by their GP, who they probably had a relationship with for decades, that we can't do it. We are swamped. We're we're and and this comes back to accountability. It comes back to the HSC. When you consider again that massive budget of 23 billion, need to ensure that the 
uh, general hospitals in regional areas are utilised better and that the supplementary services like Zotac and GP are properly resourced. Okay. We've seen but just what's really important is... Can yeah. I just on one point when you, when you mentioned the general uh, hospital, I mean a hospital similar to Bantry and Tamalo is um, Ennis uh, Hospital. And we all saw the crisis that happened in Limerick University Hospital last week. And because of that, uh, ambulances were once again being taken directly to uh, Ennis instead of Limerick. Did we ever think that that would happen after all of the reconfiguration? I mean, in the event of a patient with non-life-threatening injury who is being transported by ambulance, do you think that protocol should be applied to Bantry Hospital, especially at this time of overcrowding in the city hospitals? Yeah, and you've, you've taken the words right out of my mouth. I was absolutely overjoyed to see this um, pilot scheme in Ennis, this kind of change of philosophy from within the HSC where um, again, people with non-life-threatening illnesses were being transferred to Ennis by ambulance. That's happening to a certain degree in Bantry with the medical assessment unit where if there's a mild stroke uh, or heart heart issues or uh, issues like that that they are brought to the medical assessment unit but that certainly needs to happen to a greater scale. In order for it to happen, though, those hospitals need to be resourced. And this, again, comes down to the HSE um, making sure that those resources are in place. I would love to see that happen to Bantry because it would it would do a couple of things, Patricia. First of all, it would take huge pressure off the likes of the A&E and CUH, but it would also put emphasis on Bantry as a facility itself. And one of the biggest issues with recruitment down to Bantry is that some of the, uh, we'll say, newly qualified consultants, newly qualified anaesthetists, newly qualified general physicians, they, they want to be in the middle of it all. They want to be, I suppose, for want of a better term, where all the action is. And sometimes when you look at the likes of Bantry, they feel like that's not the place for them to learn or to cut their teeth. If you invest and if you put more resources into a hospital, like Bantry is getting a new endoscopy unit, it has the local injury unit, it has the medical assessment unit, the more services that you put into a hospital, the more that you can attract talent. So I think that's that's an absolute key way of, okay. of, of ensuring, That's what we need of ensuring to do. that Okay, Finbar, Finbar from Bantry says, uh, Christopher, you're full of hot air. Your party is in power. You're in charge of the HSE. Do something about it. Yeah, just as I predicted, I, I, I'd imagine that there would be people screaming down the phone. And again, I'm not shirking responsibility here. We There is an oversight um, role that TDs play. There's an, absolutely an oversight role that the minister plays. But, you know, we can do so much, we can give the HSE the resources. I'll come back to that staggering figure, 16 billion in 2019, increased to 23 billion 2023. We're putting the finances there, we're, we're backing up the HSE with funding, but there has to be accountability within the HSE as well and I think there's a new opportunity here. The CHO4, which is the um, the area covering Kerry and Cork, um, uh, Jerry O'Dwyer, the old the CEO of the CHO4 has, has stepped down and now there's a new CHO to be appointed. We don't know who that is yet, but there's a huge opportunity there to ensure that um, we start afresh and we ensure that that service is delivered. I completely take Finbar's point on board. I'm not shirking responsibility here. There is, um, we need, we need, we are in government. We need to ensure that there's a, a systematic change, but that's exactly what needs to happen. Okay, but and I can see account- lots of people accountability, saying, yeah. accountability is the key word. Okay, and see a lot of people, whenever you mention the HSC, people say too many managers, too many people walking around with, with clipboards, uh, too many chiefs and not enough Indians. I can see a lot of calls coming in on that. And Maura in Bantry says, so long as your radio station been talking about uh, um, telling HSC uh, officials, um, uh, including reps from the HSC, Department of Health and TDs, including former ministers of health, that close 
in the A&E department in Bantry and in Mallow and Aladdin Ennis uh, was simply wrong. It would lead to a huge backlog in the city hospitals, which is exactly what was predicting is happening now. CUH is packed to the rafters. If you funnel everybody into one hospital, what are you going to have? You're going to have an overcrowded uh, hospital. Uh, we, it, was, it was predicted and people are dying over this uh, type of carry on. That whole reconfiguration, does it all need to be looked at again, Christopher? Uh, look, I, I, there is a plan there. There is Schlaunche Care, which is about delivering um, healthcare in the community. It's about um, essentially doing away with this two-tier system. And if you, you know, I, I've, I've spoken to two types of people over over um, the winter. You have people who have received treatment through private healthcare, where everything is done uh, to the clock. Everything is done to a T. Everything is is absolutely uh, done to precision. And then you have people who have had to experience um, public health care, where it's it's the complete opposite. So, Schlaunche Care is the big plan, but we need to ensure that it's it's, it's implemented. But having said that, within the, within the management, and you, you mentioned it there in your introduction, um, Patricia, when you're within the system, whether it's oncology, whether it's cardiology, when you're in there in the public uh, uh, sector, it is the care is fantastic. Mm. It's trying to get in there is yeah. is the issue, and and. HSC management and the HSC has been around uh, long enough now. It, it, there needs to be accountability. There needs to be um, rewards if targets are achieved, but there also needs to be accountability and there needs to be repercussions if, con- target, if targets are consistently missed. That's what we see in all other sectors. It needs to happen within the HSE as okay. well. HSE okay. as well. All right, we leave it there, uh, Christopher. Thank you for that, and thanks for joining us on the program. Thank you, Patricia. Good morning Bye-bye. to you. That is uh, West Cork, Fianna Fáil Dáil Deputy Christopher O'Sullivan. Speaking to the Corkman newspaper this week, a local councillor representing the Mid and North Cork areas said there are simply not enough outdoor workers to repair potholes that are unfortunately increasing in frequency on all of our roads. To chat more, I'm joined by that councillor, that's Fine Gael councillor Ted Lucy. Good morning to you, Ted. Good morning. Uh, you're welcome to the programme. And as soon as I mentioned that we were going to be discussing uh, potholes on the programme, I can see John Paul has been inundated with calls from all over the county, from people identifying roads that they say have particularly become bad in the last few days because of heavy rain uh, in, in, uh, that we've been experiencing in the last week or so. In your own area of McCroom, what sort of decline have you seen in outdoor staff? I've seen uh, over the years, I suppose going back in the town council time, maybe 12, 14 years ago, in the town itself, with seven rogate certain people, our council workers within the town itself in the urban. Now there's one full time and one temporary. And how, how, how far I mean, not what is it, Mr. Little, no, but same time. Sorry, your phone is breaking up slightly. If you could just move move slightly. To, I just want to recap on those figures because I think they're important to mention. Okay. So, so 12, 14 years ago, about seven or eight just for the town of McCroom. Yeah, for the urban council that time. Oh, it was the urban council. And you're saying that yeah. number now is down to one full-time and one part-time? Correct, yeah. Yeah, no, that time there was water and you know, there was a cap in from town in the council. But everyone was wrong to get their own jobs that time. But since some, I suppose since the town council went, it has been wide broadened out in the municipal district, and and workers have, you know, has spread out. And not saying the work isn't being done in town, but it's well behind. And to Norman's fault in the office, it's obviously management of whoever in charge. But 
come into the potholes and things like that's because of lack of soldiers on the ground and they want to do the work with, with health and safety and other issues. It's just impossible for them to get ahead of what they have. Our potholes are in front of them at the moment. But they will put the time of the year as well at the moment because... It isn't helping. And those figures for lack of outdoor staff or less outdoor staff, I take it that's replicated right across the county. It's not just that you and McCroom are unlucky. No, no, it is. It is. But McCroom Municipal District is one of the lowest. Is it? For workers, yeah, one of the lowest. No. The lads are fantastic. But like we are one of the lowest. And uh, there's potholes, even the town itself. You know, the way I'm saying it's, it's, it's part of the town you couldn't walk because there's water flowing down. Uh, like, outside the pass and it's, cr- it's after crawling away and it's kind of a channel that's holding water and you get drowned, you know. And as councillors, are you constantly hearing from constituents who are complaining about potholes, Ted? Hugely. And uh. I don't blame them because maybe in more remote areas, there's potholes coming every road and they come there as well. And they're the ones that are probably slower to get to. And like they're frustrated. And I know like they're three, four weeks behind filling potholes because of, I suppose, being short of staff. People were sick, you know, the bed flu and COVID for long. And everything have enough on in this, and they're three or four weeks behind. Now they're getting there, but I would think there's another two weeks left, in my opinion, before they get up to the internet, and that's the end weather as well. Yeah, and in the meantime, we've got this wet weather that isn't helping if you've got a small yeah. pothole, it can become a very large pothole uh, very quickly. Are people, do you know, applying to the council for compensation to cover the cost of damage they've done to their tyres or damage done to their vehicles? Are you hearing much of that? Yeah, definitely. I looked at it as a a forum there, there's a section there that you deal with that. Deal with that. Um, my advice to anyone that do go into that possible or break anything is get a photograph taken of it straight away because that'll give it the time and everything. Put up performance and the, you know, and, uh, and apply and apply, apply for the compensation. Yeah, and, co- yeah. and we all have cameras on our phone, so it's easy. Yeah. It was probably much more difficult uh, years ago. And and I mentioned earlier when I was teeing up that you were coming on the programme, Ted, locals will know exactly where the potholes uh, are. But visitors over Christmas, we must have had people visiting our areas who, d- who did damage to, uh, to their cars uh, while driving on roads that they're not familiar with. Definitely in the time of the year, you know, it's dark or this round is dark. When you drive a wet night or a wet evening and it's dark, you don't see the pothole in the interest and it's saying you've damaged it straight away. So it is, it is a huge problem and there is a lot of damage done to cars. Uh, you know, and you can do a lot of damage when you go into a pothole, actually, with the tire, the tire and everything. The amount of serious cost last week, you know. Okay, someone is saying well done to Ted for for calling this out and asking: Is it simply down to lack of funding for the recruitment of new staff? A lot of it is. Is it? Look, the workers are paid. I think there's three, uh, two or three different. I think two, if not three, different ways the wages are made up for the workers. And one, one of them is the uh, money that comes into the government for local workers improvements, and there's a money goes into wages. So, like, if we get more money from government, we can employ more staff, and that's why it goes basically down to, you know, but, look, I think there are, if they are going to try and get more staff for our side of the neighbourhood straight across the county as well, I think there was a discussion about the time with the CEO, and not the, the director of roads as well, uh, sitting down to talk about it. So I think, look, we can't get any worse, hope that things will improve. But at the same time, we have to keep, keep in top of it, because I've never seen, I'm 23 and a half years in the council, and they've never seen roads as bad. Um, as bad. Yeah. 
And actually, a couple of people are asking the, the same question. How does the council executive decide which pothole gets filled and which are left untreated? Well, here in Macomb, I know they have in the office over in their Thursday, Friday. They have a list made and they're doing it down, you know, where the phone calls are coming in. They're obviously not going to go out and fill one pothole if it's, you know, 15 kilometres away and go back again tomorrow and fill one. They're trying to put a program together. But it's just from where the phone call is coming in, they're trying to do priority of that list. Like, they're not out to the affiliate pothole. If there's a phone call coming in the phone, they're trying to prioritise in that list. And that's, is that phone calls to members of the public? Yes, from yeah, the public okay. and ourselves as well, and anyone that has looked north of the pothole, ring. The so it, it is it is worth making the council executive aware of where a particularly bad pothole is. It could be, or contact ourselves as local councillors. But at the same time, if, if there's a very very bad pothole, and it, you know, and, and and it can be proved that they'll obviously address that probably faster than they'll address maybe half dozen, or nine or ten very small potholes. But at the same time, they're trying to do, it in, in in the way that it's coming in naturally. Like, I someone the other day announced they said they found in a month ago there's potholes there, but to be fair, they were filled on Thursday. Yeah, but waiting a month is just... It's it's savage, yeah. It's but with Christmas in between, Patricia, I know, I know. Sick, you have holidays you know? and everything, and you're right, yeah. you have people out sick, and, and then out if you and then if you have less staff to start with. And the staff, like, to be fair now, there's a lot of stuff going up with social media about stuff, and, and the staff are fed up with that too because they are doing their level best. The man on the ground with the shovel, it certainly yeah. isn't, isn't their fault. All right, Ted, listen, thank you for highlighting this and thanks for joining us on the programme. Good thank morning you. to you. That is McCroom based councillor Ted Lucy. You're listening to Cork Today on replay. Phone and text lines are currently closed. As soon as we mention potholes, inevitably the phones light up, text message machine nearly blows up uh, with people who all want to call out and identify roads in their area where there are particularly bad uh, potholes. And this morning, bulk of the calls coming, I have to say from the West Cork area, a lot of calls around Bandon, Dunmanway and Clonakilty uh, saying that in recent days, due to heavy rain, a lot of potholes have appeared on roads in those areas. And in Mill Street then was on when we were discussing with Ted Lucy, one of the reasons for it is down to the fact that we don't have as many outdoor staff as we had even just he was talking about was it 10 14 years ago it's not that long ago that we had much more outdoor staff employed by the council than we have uh, today and Anne is pondering on what Ted said this morning and said why are the council not able to employ outdoor staff uh, is it that they can't find the workers no it, it seems to be down to funding when I asked Ted that he said it's, it's down to fun- funding so if it is down to funding Anne is scratching her head she said how come in a time where we less money in this country we seem to have more outdoor council staff to do all of that necessary work and now we're at a situation where we are awash with money in this country. We only spoke about the exchequer figures for last year. We only mentioned those last week on the programme. And, you know, was it five billion extra has been put away over and above what they were expecting to get. So we're awash with money. We're spoken about that we are a wealthy country. So we have more money in central government, in the exchequer funds than we ever had before. And yet we don't seem to have enough to be able to employ outdoor staff. And Anne says the same seems to go for hospitals, withdrawing money at hospitals and nothing seems to, it doesn't seem to improve. Hi Patricia, you spoke, this is from Anne, you spoke about potholes on the cork McCroom Road. It was about three weeks ago. Anne remembers me speaking about it on the programme. Can I let you know that they still haven't been fixed 
I travel on that particular road every day so I know exactly where the potholes are and I'm able to avoid them. There were also potholes out the McCroom Mill Street Road but they thankfully were fixed last week and I'm wondering if they are the ones that Ted spoke about but they were there for about a month but he said that they had just been uh, filled in and Anne wants to thank the workers who fixed the potholes on the McCroom Mill Street Road because somebody do something about the Cork McCroom Road uh, particularly bad with potholes and that's a, you make a point Anne that I raised when I was speaking with uh, Councillor uh, Ted Lucy that when you know an area and you know where the potholes are you are able to avoid it but you can't help but have sympathy for somebody who's coming new to an area and not aware that it's a very potholed road they're going to end up travelling on and that's how damage is done to tyres and damage is done to uh, vehicles. Mike and Bantry said the reason that the potholes are so bad at the moment they're simply not taking the water off the roads. Nobody's clearing the dikes on the road anymore, says Mike and Bantry. And of course, if we dig in and look into that, what will come out? There isn't the outdoor stuff that used to be there. The man with the shovel is gone. And the man with the shovel knew the dikes and knew exactly what needed to be cleared and what didn't need to be cleared. And, you know, you, you, Mike in Bantry is right. If you get too much water on the roads, that's what's causing a lot of the potholes. Uh, thank you for your WhatsApp, uh, Mike. Tom in Bantry says, local council workers here in Bantry filled in all of the potholes yesterday in Reen Rower East. There's only a small team of them. So can I say publicly, well done to each and every one of them. And, and yesterday's weather conditions wasn't great for outdoor staff, for sure. So well done to that. That team fixing the potholes there in the Bantry area. And Martin in Formoy comes in praise of councillors. He says about TDs and councillors, I think that they're doing the very best that they can. I would publicly like you to thank Councillor Noel McCarthy in Formoy for all of his help, particularly help that I received a few weeks ago. He was outstanding. He went above and beyond to help me and my family. Uh, thanking Noel and that's Martin in Formoy. I'm glad to do that. Glad to call out and councillors and TDs. Uh, they do work and a lot of the work is done quietly that you don't even get to hear about. It. And I, I know people are great to slag them off and talk about them but you know let's remember that they're, they're trying the ver- as Martin says they're doing the very best that they can thank you for that uh, Martin but then when I mentioned uh, security and the fact that the Department of Public um, Expenditure is confirming that they're considering whether to fund extra security for TDs and Senators and this is a direct result of the incident that happened to the Fianna Fáil Junior Minister Anne Rabbit and the Fianna Gael TD Kieran Cannon at that public meeting in Gort in Galway where they had manure thrown at them. At them. Um, Pat says, if politicians want security, let them pay for it themselves. They're on big enough wages, says uh, Pat. James Incloyne says, this idea of panic buttons, politicians have been told to consider uh, carrying a panic uh, alarm and you know I mentioned also they've been told to vary the way they travel to and from from work and that's advice that they were given via email uh, yesterday but one of the suggestions was that they should carry panic alarms with them at all times James says I don't think this panic button will do much good people will still fire and throw items at public meetings if they have the will to do it they will do it he says beforehand locals need to make sure that there is security at any public meeting 
settings or else TDs themselves need to provide their own security when they attend these meetings. But uh, James, is that what we're getting to? That we're going to have to have this ring of steel around all of our politicians? Anyway, James wonders why that man who threw the manure at Anne Rabbit and Kieran Cannon, why wasn't he asked what he was doing and if there was security at the, mo- at the meeting, why wasn't he removed? Well, I know he had he had been holding the mic, you know, it was a public meeting, so he had been having a bit of a rant to the politicians and to the others who were uh, present. He didn't leave the meeting after throwing the manure. He remained. It didn't it didn't sound to me like there was any uh, security there. So James reckons that's what needs to happen at all public meetings. There has to be some kind of security. And he said over the years he's been at meetings. One in particular he meant he, he remembers was to do with wind uh, farms. He said that meeting got very, very heated. Now, thankfully, nothing uh, happened. But he, he says he has attended meetings where things can get very, very heated. And it was a biomass plant, wasn't it? Was what that public meeting was about in uh, County Galway. So, yeah, anything on an environmental nature or anything that's going to be built in an area that people don't like, it can get very heated indeed. I will agree with you on that, James. So, James reckons public meetings, people organising public public meetings, we're going to have to start looking at security. Denny in uh, Skibbereen says, I think everyone in the public limelight today should have some kind of security. He said he wouldn't be the biggest fan of our elected public representatives, but he said I certainly wouldn't be going out and attacking anyone. But I feel because of the likes of social media, people in society seem to be coming and getting more angry and they feel like that they can do what they want to another person, even if at the time they don't think it's going to cause any harm. So, yes, security now needs to be provided. But I'm wondering, Dinny in uh, Skibbereen, are you thinking that the state should fund that security in order to protect our TDs and senators? You don't state that in your comment. And Joe in uh, Kilmallock says, I agree with somebody who texted you earlier, uh, Patricia, that, ma- that gentleman, Pat, the TDs and senators get big enough wages so they should be paying for their own security. Why should we, the taxpayers, have to fund it instead? 0818 103 103. We were talking about the HSC and in particular we were talking about the local injuries unit that unfortunately for the first time ever had to close in Bantry yesterday and it simply was there was they needed three doctors on duty and there was only two available and it wouldn't be safe to have opened with uh, just the two so because of that it closed for the day and I don't know I've, I've no details of how many people in West Cork had a need for the local injury clinic yesterday and what did they do instead and all the advice from the HSC when they were announcing that it wasn't going to open yesterday I mean they announced it over the weekend so they gave people notice um, it was for them to travel either to another local injuries uh, unit which would have been uh, the one in Mallow which is a fair old drive from West Cork or else to go into the city to those local injury units in the city are to to use one of the A&E departments so I don't know how many people directly got affected by the closure yesterday but good to know that it is back up and running if God forbid you're in West Cork today and you require uh, a minor injury that can be looked after at Bantry General Hospital please head there because they're open now as we speak. Now and when I was speaking with Christopher O'Sullivan he was talking about the amount of money that has gone into the HSC over the last number of years it's huge the amount of money that gets put into the HSE and every time there's a problem in the HSE that's what the the Department of Finance and the Exchequer seems to do we'll throw another you know mob of load of cash at them another big bucket of cash gets sent and and yet we come back every certainly this time of year every single 
January, we talk about a trolley crisis. Now, hands up, nothing like we're having uh, this year. But funding never seems to be uh, the issue. And somebody is agreeing with that point, said they've been throwing money at the HSE. They've been throwing it like confetti at a wedding. And guess what? Nothing changes. At times, they only seem to get worse. Someone else says uh, Patricia Christopher O'Sullivan can talk the talk, but can he walk the walk? If the HSC are not doing their job, then it's Christopher and all of the other elected representative, uh, representatives. It is their job to hold the HSC accountable. Stop passing the buck. I agree about the reconfiguration that you mentioned. Everybody knew the dogs on the street knew it was going to be a disaster. Everybody said it at the time, but it was as if nobody was going to listen to common sense. Suits are making decisions without listening to people who are actually working on the ground. Yeah, and that's why when I saw this year, because Ennis Hospital would have been the same as Mallow General Hospital and Bantry Hospital, where they would have had an A&E department. And like the good people of Mallow, like the good people of West Cork, everybody fought to keep their A&E. They didn't win under reconfiguration. And we were told what we put in place would be better for everybody. And we'd have these centres of excellence uh, in the cities for our A&E departments. But of course, as everybody says, you funnel everybody into the one area and what happens you're going to get overcrowding the very same thing happened in Ennis and then this week with what happened at University Hospital in Limerick which would be their equivalent to our university um, our CUH here what happened they complete overcrowding and because of that they started they changed the protocol and started directing some of the ambulances back to Ennis after they saying with reconfiguration that would never happen again and, and one wonders does that need to be looked at again for Mallow and for uh, Bantry and Maura says uh, Patricia good morning to you I'm listening to you talk about the HSC my husband spent a week on a trolley but was lucky to have it the nurses the doctors and the staff at the A&E department were under so much pressure but I have to say hand on heart they saved his life the people that came in who were drunk are off their heads on drugs they should be moved to a special unit they should not be allowed to enter the accident emergency department where you are very very sick people they punch kicked and mistreated the staff and they upset all of the other patients that's from Maura who says her beloved husband now Thankfully, it's obviously now doing OK because she said his life was saved by the staff. But it's been a week in a trolley. Her beloved husband was one of those 931 that was contained in the statistics that we spoke about this day last week. Wasn't it last Wednesday, last Tuesday was the day a new record was set for the number of people, of patients that were on a trolley, had been seen by a consultant, had been seen by a, do- a doctor and assessed that they needed a hospital bed. And on this day, just last week, 931 of them languished on trolleys and there was Maura's husband ended up on that trolley for a full week 0818 103 103 you can call John Paul or you can text her WhatsApp 0862 103 103 C103 Jobs we have a childbinder required for two school going children it's in the Killavollen area now school collections will be required 086 0288764. A store assistant is required for a busy agri spare parts company in Mallow. Full clean driver's license would be an advantage. You need to email sales at technic 
www.rathmore.ie. St. Joseph's Day Care Centre, that's in Rathmore. They're looking for a trainee D1 licensed bus driver. It's to take part in their community employment scheme. If you're interested, please call 089 4754. And an office administrator is required to work 19 and a half hours per week in a community employment office in Rathmore. Call 089 4754. You'll find all the details and more job opportunities by going online now. Just go to c103.ie forward slash jobs for more. This is C103. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. Promoter, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie. With the final litter survey for 2022 released yesterday, it was confirmed that Cork City Centre and Mahan are two of Ireland's litter black spots with the situation in Mahan actually deteriorating in the last year. Conor Horgan of the Irish Business Against Litter joins me. Good morning to you, Conor. Good morning, Patricia. And a happy new year uh, to you. To you as well. Now, it's a mixed result for Cork City and counties. So let's start with that bad news first with Mahan. Am I right in saying that Mahan was the only seriously littered area in the country that was surveyed? That's right. I mean, overall, it's been good news um, this January uh, when we look back on 2022, Patricia. Um, we've seen a big increase in the number of clean towns and it's good news for most counties, but it is mixed news for Cork, as you say. And yes, Mahan is now the only town at the very foot of our rankings that is deemed seriously littered. Now, I would say in its defence, it's just about seriously littered. And if it was a few points better, it would have been into that littered category. So you can see by that that there is an overall improvement nationwide. But Mahan was one of the few areas that did not improve year in year. In fact, it deteriorated. And I, I couldn't believe when I was reading the report from Mahan. I mean, dirty nappies were noticed at a, at a few separate locations. Yeah, I mean, there were two things that were striking. Obviously, that does strike you. And that's an example of dumped items, which uh, and there was a definite issue with dumping in Mahan. Uh, but not just that. It's not just the, the heavily littered sites. They included the pedestrian link to Aldi, which was a litter black spot. The Avenue de Rennes was heavily littered. Um, the area of Lakelands showed no improvement. But even that aside, there were only two good sites. Yeah. They included the shopping centre in Man. So that's quite striking now and would not be at all representative of towns across the country. Yeah, but quite just, the reverse. But just, but just disappointing to see a deterioration, you know, because usually when it's highlighted in an area, there's a big effort made. And usually then you'd be back onto us within months to say there's been an improvement. But unfortunately, that it, hasn't happened in Mahan. No, and that is a bit of an outlier, Patricia, which doesn't make the news any better. But um, we have spoken before about our frustration that local authorities don't seem to act when we highlight areas that are very bad. That definitely happened in 2022 across the country. We saw a big reduction in the number of heavily littered sites, which was great news. Unfortunately, not in Mahan and not in Cork City Centre either, unfortunately. Yeah, there was. Um, and it, it, but and the, the Cork North sites, there was some improvements, even though it still ended up in the moderately littered um, yes, and category. that might not sound great, but from our point of view, when we're looking forensically at the at the reports, it was a notable improvement in Cork Northside, which was previously, there were several sites which were previously very heavily littered, 
and they'd been cleaned up. They included Sun Valley Drive, Valley Valan Road and Upper Fair Hill. Um, not just better in terms of cleanliness, but overall presentation as well in terms of how the grass verges were maintained. Um, some sites which were moderately littered have inched up to the top litter grade, such as Gerald Griffin Street, North Monastery Road, Cathedral Road and Banduff. There were bad sites, that's why it's still in the category it is. Regford Road was subject to dumping. Popham's Road was only marginally better. They were both litter black spots. Yeah. That's what's keeping Northside down. Yeah. But overall, I think there's, there's, um, there's scope and, for hope And listen, let, let's really look at the positives then because um, another very good result for the town of Middleton. Middleton again. And obviously, you know, when Middleton we're talking about a town as opposed to a city area, that makes a difference. As we know, it's city areas that dominate the bottom half of our table. Um, but Middleton uh, achieved a, uh, a top 10 showing. So that was um, uh, excellent. And it can count itself among the cleanest towns in the country, all the better in that it was moderately littered last time out. So it has improved significantly. Seven of the 10 sites surveyed got the top litter grade. Again, they were very well presented. They included the Main Street, Market Green Car Park, Willowbank Residential Area and the Riverbank Residential Area. Um, there was only one heavily littered site that was the clothing bank at Distillery Road Car Park now that's subject pro- to dumping that's, that's just not a problem I think for Middleton that can become a problem for a, a number of areas that, and it, it frustrates me that when I see items left beside a clothing bank because what happens is if one person leaves a bag if they arrive and the clothing bank is full and they're trying to do their best bit they're trying to recycle and they leave the bag there what has a tendency to happen is then others that come along think oh it's okay to leave bags there and very quickly it becomes subject to dumping no you're right and i mean previously we might have had our sights on the council in terms of managing these areas but I think evidence suggests they're doing a better area of re, you know of emptying these sites at peak times and so forth. The problem is, as you as you say, in the main, it's behaviour. People think they have a right to leave their 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 uh, their material at these sites, whether they're full or not, and it does lead to that sort of chaotic situation where people are leaving bottles upon bottles outside of the bins. And uh, sometimes they strew, they stray out of those areas, and they can be hazardous almost. So, um, we, you know, we got to call on people's, uh, you know, civic duty. In if if you go to a bank, I know it's frustrating. If it happens to be full, well, just you know, leave your bottles in the boot and come the next day. Yeah, either find another bank that might mightn't be as full, or as you say, return on another day. And then looking at the overall surveys, you've touched on forty cities and uh, towns. We are getting cleaner compared to last year, and that's the real good news from this most, overall survey. Most definitely, and I suppose um, you know uh, we've been the bearer of not so good news in the last couple of years because of COVID its impact on cleanliness we've spoken about. Um, We've seemed to have left COVID behind us. Um, We're back to the same cleanliness levels we enjoyed before COVID. That means three quarters of our town's clean. That's pretty good. Our city areas aren't clean. But there is evidence that those very bad areas like Galvone and Limerick, Dublin's north inner city, they are emerging from that litter black spot status. And whilst they're not clean, they're... Ready to pop the question? 
The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Definitely improved. Yeah, once we can even see improvement and it was nice took the title of the, the cleanest uh, town uh, in uh, Ireland and, and I saw it on the, the news uh, last night. It just is such a, a pretty little town. What can we learn from Nice? Well, you know, it's hard, we've spoken before. It's hard to to come up with a recipe for success, but being out in Nace for the second year in a row and, you know, the, the large crowd of tidy towns, volunteers, local authorities, business people involved, it is sort of everyone doing their bit. And in fairness to the local authority, you know, it's not a coincidence that Kildare towns do so well. Maynooth was in second place. Leak slip is forever a high flyer in our chart. We didn't include it this year. So clearly the local authority is giving priority to litter in a way that some local authorities aren't. Uh, Lorraine says uh, she's involved with litter picking in their area, sick to the teeth of collecting cans and bottles uh, that could so easily be recycled. Why do people insist on just dumping them out uh, car windows? That I mean, we, we're getting a deposit return scheme, aren't we? But when is yeah, that going to be introduced? That's going to be introduced, I, I, I hear, as early as next month. Now, I'm surprised there hasn't been more of a brouhaha over it because it's, it's going to be quite a change, a change that we welcome. I'm uh, familiar with that situation from having lived in Germany for a few months last year. And, you know, it's, if it works, it will rid our streets of one of the most common forms of litter we encounter, plastic bottles and cans. And, you know, it, it has to be, the, the deposit paid has to be at a level that it actually assigns a value to that bottle where you wouldn't dream of, of not returning that bottle or can. Yeah, um, and, and, and you know it's it's an inconvenience for people, but it's not a huge inconvenience. You know, you're going to do your weekly shop. You just bring along your used cans and bottles in a bag with you. 
Well, and, uh, well, I know it. It might at the there's an Aldi store near where I live, and they introduced a trial. They did it for Bernardo's mm-hmm. or something uh, for a number of months uh, during the year. So I just got into the habit. We had a bag at home, and everybody knew that's the bag for the recycling of the cans and the plastic bottles. And like that, once a week, when I was popping into Aldi to do a bit of shopping picked up this bag, brought it with me and it was the easiest thing to do. I mean, you know, I, I no, got... It, really is. it was it's a just, very easy habit to get into. It is. I think it's just important that the machines be plentiful so that you don't face a queue both at the start of your shop in, in giving back your bottles as well as at the end of your shop when you're, you know, yeah, yeah. going to the till for you. So, that, you know, I think we have to make it as seamless as possible for people because they will get into the routine and... Um, it's, um, you know, there's, I think of all the sites we surveyed, and that's over 500, um, plastic bottles and cans were in almost a third of those sites. So, so yeah, if, we we, have, yeah, if we have they're a cleaned up, yeah. that's going to make that's a big gonna, difference. Yeah. So I see this as, as really a great sign of hope for next year, that we're suddenly we're going to be rid of all these materials. Now, maybe I'm naive, but... But, um, you know, if a can is worth 40 cent or something, People you know, or will 30 start cent, recycling them. They will. They or certainly pick them will. up even. They will, you know? yeah. <laughs> um, our cigarette, Martina wants to know, are cigarette butts still an issue? Well, uh, of course they are. Um, uh, you know, we see them often on streets that are otherwise pristine. You'll see cigarette butts. Talking to the Tidy Towns volunteers yesterday in Nace, it's clear they're more difficult to pick up. You know, you spend a lot of time on a street if you're going to clear, clear up every cigarette butt, whereas, you know, you could do quite a quick clean-up of other items. So uh, they do tend to stay on the pavements, and, of course, they enter our drains and cause plastic pollution in our seas and so forth. Again, there's change afoot there that, under EU legislation, um, cigarette manufacturers are having to help finance the clean-up of these items. And our government has announced that that will be the case in, in, in Dublin, I think, at least, perhaps elsewhere. Um, but that's not saying there'll be supplementary cleaning. So if it's the case that it just saves the exchequer money, well, it's welcome, but it's not a big enough change. Mm, so, yeah. Um, yeah, you know, yeah, uh, someone else there's debate said. over whether you have recycle facilities for cigarettes for cigarettes at every, or, or, or even disposal facilities at every corner for cigarettes. Some people don't like that idea. They think it encourages smoking. Yeah, but somebody else but, who um, is who signs themselves as a smoker, we, we need more receptacles and more ashtrays I, in well, the public. I think we do. To, yeah. I think, you know, I mean, yeah. if you're a smoker, you've got a bit of an issue if you have your cigarette. Yeah, and you have to go outside to smoke it. So, so yeah, OK, yeah. I, I can understand yeah. it from, from uh, as an ex-smoker, I have sympathy for the smokers. OK, yeah. and just, I'm glad to hear you mention the... the the volunteers of the tidy towns—they—they they really are unsung heroes, aren't they? Right around the country. Well, you know, it wasn't our intention that our um, <clears throat> that our surveys would prove prove a platform for the great work of the tidy towns, but it, that is the case. You know, you can't get away from their work. And you know, I've been asked lots of questions: Should it not be the council that does a lot of this work? And is it the tidy town that shoulders much of the responsibility? I think in lots of towns it is. I think the tidy towns are the people who do the work on the ground. But it's a great asset we have, and um, we just need to applaud them more. I think, mm. and uh, you know, let's hope the tidy towns initiative continues apace for many years. We're happy to do our bit in, in shining a light on the great work they do, because well um, uh, without them. 
heaven forbid what the place had looked like. Yeah, yeah, I'm uh, constantly saying that. Okay, because we were only speaking earlier about how there's lack of outdoor staff at the council, so they're already yes. under pressure. Where Indeed. would we be without our tidy towns? Listen, Connor, as always, a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you for that. Thank you, Patricia. And thanks for yeah. joining us. That is Connor Horgan, who joins us from Ibo, the Irish Business Against uh, Litter. Now, next Sunday, the 15th of January, is going to be a very exciting day in Court McSherry with the arrival of the new Shannon Class lifeboat. To talk about the significance of the new lifeboat, I'm delighted to be joined by Vincent O'Donovan, who is press officer at the Court McSherry RNLI lifeboat station. Good morning to you, Vincent. Uh, good morning, Patricia. And, and you're, you're very welcome. Um, it's all systems uh, go, and I imagine great excitement building for next weekend. But take me back, when did you last receive a new lifeboat at Court McSherry? Yes, Patricia, it was 1995. Uh, we received the, the last boat, which was the Frederick Story Coburn, a Trent-class boat. Uh, we have that boat now uh, 27 years. It's hard to believe that. It's 27 years ago since the the, the lifeboat arrived here in Court Mac, and that was our tenth lifeboat since 1825. Uh, the uh, replacement now, uh, and every every so often uh, the 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 Arnoy replaced their fleet after a, a period of about 25 years. So we're getting the most modern lifeboat in the RLI fleet, the Shannon class. That's and brilliant. we're very proud of it and uh, looking it's, forward to Sunday immensely. I had to double read that uh, figure that you issued us, that this is only this will only be the 11th lifeboat, yes. bearing in mind that the, the first lifeboat was stationed in Court McSherry in 1825. It's, That's right. It's incredible yeah, the first, that it's only eleven lifeboats. Later. It is indeed. It is indeed. Uh, it, it certainly is. And that first story, first boat, uh, Court McSherry, along with Arklow, are the oldest lifeboat stations in Ireland, following the setting up of the lifeboat institution in eighteen twenty four. And that boat, called the Plenty, was a purely rowing boat. Oh my and goodness! It, it, purely rowing boat. It was followed in by the City of Dublin, then by the Farrells, the Kesey Gwent, the. Sarah Warden, Willem David Crossweller, and so on to... The and all of now. those boats have, have served you all um, so well. Tell me about this new boat, though. What can you tell us about this, this Shannon-class lifeboat? Yeah, the, the Shannon-class lifeboat is, is probably unique in that, it's first of all, it's the first lifeboat to be named after an Irish river. All the lifeboats are named after rivers, named after an Irish river called the Shannon. It's also designed uh, by uh, dairyman Peter Oyer, uh, who was as a child was rescued himself by the Loxville Yarnalloy in Donegal. So the Shannon class boat is, is unique in, in the Arnoy fleet in that it's the most modern and it's also jet propelled. And what it what me, what it what is meant by jet propelled is that it's got incredible control and versatility when manoeuvring the lifeboat close to casualties or hazards, etc. And the lifeboat can spin on a spot uh, it's uh, 45 foot long, it's um, 15 foot wide, it, 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 it takes a draft, that's what's under the boat, away lower than other boats in that it only takes a draft of about 2 foot 6 inches, that's because of its jet propelled engines. And we are really looking forward to the very fast boat, um, the official speed is around 26.5 uh, miles per hour, but... Uh, in, in lots of trials of late, it's getting far faster than that. That's amazing, that's amazing. Do I take it that the members of the crew will all have to receive training? Yes, and the training started back in, in November when uh, many of our coxswains, our volunteer coxswains uh, and our mechanics 
uh, did uh, extensive training in the headquarters of the RNLA in Poole. Um, uh, four of our, or five of our crew are in Poole at present today. I was talking to them this morning in, in the rough season, as they call it, dirty weather off Poole, doing more <laughs> extensive training. And when the boat arrives back at station uh, on Sunday, uh, for the following week, there will be fleet coxswains here training up the crew. And then for the following month, there'll be an extensive series of training for all our 28 crew members. And uh, it's it's hugely important because this is a very modern boat. It's the most modern boat in the fleet. Its electronics are unbelievable, but it's uh, it's also tried and tested and it's, uh, it's been uh, welcomed by everybody. So the crew that have gone, that are gone, that are in pool, they'll skipper it back Yes, uh, the, that, crew under, the crew under Sean O'Farrell Coxon uh, went over on Sunday. Okay. They will come back with a fleet coxswain. There'll always be a fleet coxswain uh, from the Arnold come with them on Sunday. They'll leave they leave um, Pool on Wednesday as part of their training. They'll go to Weymouth, which is the first stop. It's ironic because the donor of that lifeboat is from Weymouth. They'll come on to Newland, cross to Dunmore East, down to Crosshaven, uh, and on from the Saturday, um, Sunday, they'll travel from Crosshaven back here to Court. To Court now, you, it's expected at about a quarter to two on Sunday afternoon. What's the plan for next Sunday? Yeah, the plan is that uh, the reason why we bring in it at quarter to two is that the number of the boat is 13.45. Uh, uh, a quarter to two, we arrive at the, um, at the wood point. There'll be a flotilla of boats led by our own Trent class lifeboat under Cox and MacGannon. It'll also be led by uh, a fleet of local uh, fishing and pleasure boats and there'll be a flotilla up the harbour at quarter to two arriving then at the pontoon and there'll be a great viewing place from, from all the way out to the point of the wood along the village in Court Mac or on the pier and near the pontoon. So it's a, a significant day. We we fondly remember the, the last times the, the lifeboats arrived here. And I suppose at these times, you know, we fondly remember all the, the volunteers. And uh, and we've so much thanked the, the various coxswains and the mechanics and the crew of, of our station over the last century who welcomed boats here to Court Mac, like Johnny Barry and Paddy Kewan and Sammy Mearns and, and Brendan Madden. And of, of note here is that our last two retired coxswains, Jim Romani and Dan O'Dwyer, they oversaw the, the move from the slower to the fast lifeboats. And both will be on the pier on Sunday yeah. to welcome Val Adam. But for Dermot, and for Dermot, it will be his sixth new lifeboat that he'll be welcoming to Court Mac. God, incredible. That's incredible. It's incredible when you think there's only been 11 uh, since, the, since the start of the lifeboat station uh, there. And the official naming ceremony is not happening until later on in the year. Tell me about the, the, the naming ceremony and this very, very generous and gracious uh, donor. Yeah, I suppose, look, you know, most uh, lifeboats are funded by donations uh, and donors uh, and and we are so proud in the village of Courtmark that uh, a generous donation has been received by Val Adnams, um, who is an 85-year-old lady who uh, uh, lives in, in, in now in Idaho in the USA. She grew up in, in, in Preston and Weymouth in the UK and she was an avid sailor in Weymouth and uh, beside the sailing school in, in Weymouth was the lifeboat station. So she garnered a great interest in the lifeboat when they were called out. Uh, she remains a lifelong supporter of the RNLI. 
and she decided that she wanted to support a, a lifeboat. She was absolutely proud to support the Court Maturity lifeboat. Uh, and uh, she she moved to Washington, D.C. at the age of 23, worked on Capitol Hill for some years before meeting her lifelong partner, and she now resides there in Idaho. And she, with her family, are coming over here for the naming ceremony, which normally happens about three or four months after the lifeboat arrival. This year, this time, it's going to be the 9th of September this year. And we're, but she's we're actually, uh, Val is actually going to be in Court Mac for the naming ceremony. Yes, indeed. We ah, have that's... talked, we have talked extensively to, to Val Adams over the last, um, over the last six months as the boat was being built in Poole and she took a great interest in every step of the way as the boat was being built from the hull upwards and she will be in Court McStory for that naming ceremony uh, in September and she is so proud to be supporting uh, the RLI. Well, we'll definitely speak with you in advance of that, that to, to let people know. But in the meantime, you're giving a kind of a, an open invitation to anyone who's around on Sunday, please God, the weather will be nice to come to Court Mac because it's, it's, it's quite, it'll be quite a spectacle to see it with all the other flotilla of boats. It is, it is, it is. And it's, you know, I suppose uh, it's a once in a lifetime for many people um, uh, to see the lifeboat arrived. Uh, we have the various pictures over the, the decades of, of lifeboats arriving. It's very special for us. It's a new lifeboat. It's the most modern in the fleet. Uh, uh, and we are saying to people, come along, have a look at it as she comes in the bay. Have a look at the vulnerability of it as she comes in with our crew. And uh, it, it, it's a special day for the village and it's a special day for our lifeboat fraternity here in, in Cork McSherry. And, and we're so proud that we can welcome a new boat and uh, to, uh, to, uh, to the South Coast with yeah, all the other stations. You know, and it'll do what lifeboats do. It'll save lives. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, we, we, are, we are looking forward uh, to the training. And we're looking forward to um, this boat uh, being a very, very important uh, element in the rescue services along with the Coast Guard and all the other people around the coast in preventing lives. You know, last two years we've had 51 call-outs here in Court McBray, which was a record. And we're very proud of everybody involved in the station and the fundraising and the crew, officers and all those that support the Arnolai right around West Cork and the country. Your volunteers are you're absolutely amazing. Continued good luck and stay safe to everybody involved with the RNA line, as we always say to people. If you have a few bob to spare, it's a great, great charity to uh, donate to. Listen, enjoy uh, Sunday, Vincent, because I can sense the excitement and hear the excitement in your voice as well. And uh, thank you so much for taking time out to talk to and us. And before today. I go, Patricia, may I just say on behalf of all the lifeboat stations of fraternity around our coast that we convey our sincere sympathies to Paddy Palmer and the Palmer family. Not alone was he, when we got to meet him, was he talking about GA, but he always, always made it a point to, to say, ask us, how was the lifeboat doing in Court Mac? You know, he was that kind of a person who, who was concerned about how people and communities were, and we say may he rest in peace because he was one of his kind, but he was so, so concerned always about us all. That doesn't surprise me. Listen, thank you for that, uh, Vincent, and thanks for joining us. Good morning to you. That is uh, Vincent O'Donovan, who is the press officer at the Cork McSherry RNLI Lifeboat Station. You're listening to Cork Today on replay. Phone and text lines are currently closed. While there's been a 
huge outpouring of uh, love and respect and condolences from the GAA uh, world with the passing of our own uh, Paddy Palmer. Really saddened to hear there on the news with Barry that in uh, North Cork, the GAA uh, are sharing the news of the death of one of their young players. He's from uh, Kildare GAA. have shared the news of young 22-year-old Paddy Hartnett who uh, passed away. He was sadly involved in a fatal road collision outside the village of Ballylanders early yesterday morning. It seems that young Paddy was on his way to work. Um, Now, the second man involved has been treated in CUH for non-life-threatening injuries. But just reading about young uh, Paddy, he just seems to have been one of those really nice guys and his death is going to have a huge effect on so many uh, people. And, and, And just seeing online... Um, the Kildare GAA, you know, sharing the news of the death of, of one of their own and putting up a lovely photograph of just what a lovely, handsome young man at 22, his whole life uh, ahead of him. It is just so, so sad. So we pass on our deepest, deepest sympathies to the Hartnett family and indeed everybody involved in Kildare uh, GAA and the wider GAA family. It's a little bit like when we were talking about in radio circles, we've, we're like a little radio uh, family, like Paddy's death has been had such a profound effect on all of us. It's the same for any group or organisation like that, especially within the GAA. So we remember um, the sad passing of Paddy Hartnett and may he rest in peace. 0818103103, John Paul taking your call. Some of your texts and commentary coming into the programme. We were speaking about the Irish Business Against Litter in the last hour because their latest survey, well, it was the final survey, for 2022 was out yesterday mixed bag for Cork but overall when you look at the overall we are getting cleaner as a country and long may that continue and of course whenever we talk about cleaning and getting rid of litter I'm always the first one to blow the trumpet on behalf of the volunteers of the Tidy Towns because where would we be without our Tidy Towns uh, volunteers and uh, committees and somebody said just heard Patricia and Connor Horgan Viable, talking about how the Tidy Towns groups have taken over many of the functions of the county councils. A number of the Tidy Towns groups around the country actually use CE workers full-time to carry out a lot of the work. Perhaps the councils should consider employing more CE workers themselves. Well, we have, we have a problem within the council that they just simply need to employ more staff. They say there's not enough money there to employ the numbers of staff they had in the past. But yes, as a number of listeners have pointed out, we've never had so much money in the Exchequer. The you know central government needs to cough up the funds to the local authorities to make sure that we have the workers and put the workers in uh, place. Hi Patricia, McCroom Council Bridge in Kilkilt. That's in bad need of repairs with, ye- with years, particularly at the Grotto. Something needs uh, to be done uh, about that. Hi Patricia, listening to Christopher O'Sullivan earlier talking about what happened in uh, Bantry uh, Hospital. I'm sick of listening to all of the TDs over the years. They promise us the sun, moon and stars. Clearly none of them have personal experience of our hospitals like the rest of us and never will. And uh, yeah, and well, you know, they'll say that they're trying to do the very best and many of them would have had experience in uh, hospitals but they're saying, you know, his point on it was that as a member of government they are giving lots and lot, billions of euro to the HSC but for some reason they we never seem to be able to get it right and on uh, politicians and should the exchequer fund 
or extra security for TDs in light of some attacks that have happened on TDs and uh, senators. And I was talking about advice that has been given to all the TDs. They simply got a special email yesterday outlining, you know, that they need to check the routes and avoid, you know, being in areas where they feel uncomfortable and never uh, avoid leaving and returning from home or their constituency, obviously, at the same time every day or every week. And one of the ones that really sort of caught my attention uh, was to the advice being given to all of our TDs is wear comfortable shoes in order that you're able to move quickly so that if you need to run, you can run. John in Clannacilty, bit tongue in cheek, says Patricia, just to report a lorry load of runners has just been dropped off at Dáil Aaron. They're all going to be issued with uh, runners. Okay, thank you for that, uh, John. James in Brewery. This is on hospitals and what's happening at our accident and emergency department. And did I hear there on the news the Irish Nurses and Midwives Organisation? Over 500 people still awaiting a bed and languishing on trolleys as we speak uh, today. Now, down from that 931 that we had this day last week but still shockingly high uh, figures and that led to one of our listeners Maura talking about her husband who bless his heart was one of those statistics one of those 931 last week he ended up in a trolley for a week um, I don't know if he ever got a hospital bed but he was looked after by the nurses and doctors who were really overstressed in uh, in an A&E department and she was talking about and I don't know whether she was in with him in the A&E department or what he was relaying back to her was at night time people coming in off their heads on drugs are tanked up with drink and the commotion and the problems that they were causing well that got James Imbrury to contact us to say that anyone that ends up in a hospital as a direct result of consuming too much alcohol are consuming too much drugs James said, find them. Are, no, James says, de- fine, deal with them. But then once they're dealt with, charge them for the service and the treatment that they received. And says James, if somebody says, oh, I can't afford to pay that because I'm only living on a social welfare payment, then deduct the amount of money from the social welfare payment until it is paid off. He said, anyone that drinks too much to the point that they have to end up in an accident emergency department have taken too much drugs that caused them to be in an accident emergency department, then they should have to pay for the treatment that they receive. Uh, he said there's no respect for the hospital service at the moment, among some, not all, among some. But it's a frightening situation to be in a hospital environment, an A&E department, and God knows you're only going to be there if you're very, very unwell. And suddenly for the doors to burst open, open and somebody comes in, uh, who's really drunk are really off their head with uh, drugs and probably don't even know what they are doing. That's a scary, scary place uh, to be. 0818103103 on potholes. For boy need to fix the potholes on the main street, says a texter. Why can't the council take on... Now, before I read this out, this is going to infuriate some people. Why can the council not employ people that are on the dole Oh, sorry, my apologies. I'm reading. I, I thought I, I thought I was going to be reading this comment wrong. Why don't they employ people that are on the dole and give them a full time job? I thought you were going to say make people work for their dole money, which I know infuriates so many people who are those that are out of work desperately trying to find uh, work. But we're very near to full employment at the moment. Uh, we have very few people that are out of work actively looking for jobs. There are some, of course, um, but you know, we know that the work is there. 
within the council. It certainly is there for outdoor staff. The money needs to be made available to the local authorities in order that they can employ uh, staff. And uh, this listener from North Cork feels double whammy. It would take people off the dole, get them into full time, paid uh, employment, and at the same time then they can get out and fix the uh, potholes. 0818103103. And can I go to an email that we have received and we're going to be sending on the details of this email to Cork County Council to draw their attention to it. Is it Cork County? It is because it's Carrick Navarre or is it the City Council? I think it's Cork County Council. Um, I am sending you on photographs of a tree that is hanging upside down outside a housing estate on College Road across from Kalosta on Cuivnefa in Carrick Navarre. Now, when I read that, I was saying, how could a tree be hanging upside down? So I took a close look at the photographs and what it is, it is a very, very tall tree that's top heavy. And obviously, I imagine in some storm or some very windy day, the top portion of the tree has snapped but it hasn't snapped completely off. It's hanging. And the listener is right. The top half, well, maybe a half is the wrong word to use, probably about maybe a quarter of the tree is bending over. So it is hanging upside down. I don't know how much of the bark it's still hanging on by, but it's hanging there. Now, this listener says, who signed themselves a concerned parent, I took photographs and sent a couple of emails to the uh, council and the response was that they would pass it on to the relevant departments and then I had a phone call from some lad and he said oh look I'll go out and check it out for you but it was evening time so I'm not sure how he thought he could see anything in the dark as it's so far above the streetlights this is a very very tall overgrown tree now that all happened a couple of months ago and still the tree is hanging there half of it hanging off. It is a severe accident or even a death waiting to happen. There's hundreds of teenagers who walk past there every day and many, many more motorists who drive right under that tree may be unaware of what is happening to this overhanging large portion of the tree hanging off the top. Again, sorry for bothering you, but if you could highlight this with somebody, it may avoid destroying families if something happened to my child or somebody else's, God forbid. I'm sure they'd send somebody else straight away and that's signed by a concerned parent who's, who's sent on all the pictures uh, to us and we will reissue and resend on because even though the listener did send them on to uh, various council websites at the, the, the coco.ie so they were the correct web- websites uh, uh, correct email addresses well obviously they were the correct email addresses because she did get a response but I don't know why if a young lad went out and took a look at it I mean I'm, I'm assuming he didn't go out at night he must have gone out during the day but I don't know why when attention has been drawn to what does look like an accident waiting to happen certainly from the photographs I'm looking at so just to let that concerned parent know We've received your email and we will be sending it on to Cork County Council and hopefully we'll get something something done and the, the top of that tree uh, taken down. Oh, I mean, they need a tree surgeon for sure. 0818 103 103. John Paul is taking your calls. You can text, you can WhatsApp to 0862 103 103. The C103 Cork Diary. With Cork County Council, where communities and businesses all across the county can get the support they need at corkcoco.ie. Bingo is on in Champagne.
Clan Ballymore Community Hall. That's tonight at 8. The jackpot there is €3,550. Fairy Hill Nursing Home, they're celebrating their fifth successful year in caring. The staff and management would like to thank all past and present residents and their families for their support and for being part of their uh, journey. Bingo in Mallow GAA Complex, that's Friday night at 8.15 with a jackpot of €4,500. And Fremount Makra are holding a tractor run next Sunday. It's in aid of the Laura Lynn which is the only children's hospice in this country. Registration is open from 11.30 to 12.30 in Lismire GAA Hall and entry fee to the tractor run will be €20. You can contact me for more information, 089 430 Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. Promoter, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie. Quickly, some of your calls and texts coming into the uh, programme. John in the City, this is to do with security for our elective representatives and uh, the state, uh, state funding is being considered uh, as urgent security measures for TDs and senators, particularly on the with the attacks, the throwing of the bag of manure at uh, Anne Rabbit and the Fine Gael uh, TD Kieran Cannon, but there has been other more serious uh, attacks as well. John in the city says maybe if they the TDs delivered on their the jobs they're supposed to do, um, thanks to the public voting them in, there there might not be so many of these protests or so many of those attacks. People will only protest and attack uh, an elected representative when they are feeling so, so frustrated. Someone else says any of these, any of the attacks cannot be condoned, but people are getting very frustrated by policies that are affecting them year in, year out, and they're seeing no change. It's fine to say, well, you can have your voice and have your say at the ballot box, but five years, says Anthony, is a long, long time to wait, particularly if you're feeling very, very frustrated. Hi, Patricia. This is from Mal. I have to say what that lady said. I have to agree with what that lady said about her husband's experience at the A&E department. It's so true. And this is the her, the Morris husband was there for a week on a trolley and people coming in drunk. I, too, was there for almost a week on a trolley in A&E. And you haven't anywhere to wash. You end up having to share a toilet. And what's worse is you end up sharing a toilet with drunk, abusive people. When it comes to nighttime, it was quite shocking to watch the carry on. And on the council issue, maybe they should inspect the pothole work when it is supposed to have been finished. This is this is pothole work that's carried out by contractors. Sometimes the work is not done properly. A lot of money is wasted in this country, says Mal. Hi, Patricia, you're saying that there are more people in employment now than ever before. Well, Patricia, I can tell you it's very hard to find work at a certain age and if you're on social welfare you're put on TUS or a CE scheme and you're taken off the live register. That's why there are less uh, people on the live uh, register. So you're saying that they're actually hiding the figures instead, even though when you look at the, when the breakdown of the figures last week that came into the Exchequer, there are more people, our tax take, the PAYE tax take had gone up, particularly the upper end of people paying people on higher wages paying uh, the amount of tax they were paying so there are a lot of people at work 
getting good money as well but I absolutely accept when you hit a certain age it can be extremely difficult uh, to get work and my heart goes out to anybody who finds themselves unemployed at a certain age and then trying to go out and find jobs in the job uh, market. John in Cove says with all the refugees and asylum seekers that are coming into this country so many of them want to actually work. Could they not be offered job roles within the outdoor staff of the council that we're talking about today? If recruitment is an issue, then the refugees and the asylum seekers who are only too willing to work, they could be paid to work instead. See, I don't know, John in Cove, if it is a recruitment issue within the council. The council say they just don't have the money. They have a limited amount of money and they have to balance the books and they have to pay for everything out of the, the money that they get. They're saying they don't have enough, enough money to employ extra workers. It's other people are saying how come when this country wasn't awash with money we had more outdoor staff than what we have at the money uh, than what we have at the moment so the money from the central government into the exchequer doesn't seem to be trickling down to the local authorities 0818 103 103 Hi Patricia I'm wondering has anybody been commenting about the rocket launch last night i.e. the one that failed. I think it it could have been a disaster, bearing in mind it was only 300 kilometres off the Irish coast. They don't seem to know at this stage if any debris has come down or where exactly it has come down. This This was Britain's attempt to become the first European nation to launch satellites into space. And that listener is right. It ended in what can only be described as bitter disappointment when the Virgin Orbit said its rocket had suffered an anomaly that prevented it from reaching the orbit. It was a horizontal launch mission. It left from the coast town of Newquay in southwest uh, England. It was carried under the wing of a modified Boeing 747 called Cosmic Girl. And then it was later released over the Atlantic Ocean. 300 kilometres off the coast of um, Ireland. Now the Department of Transport here in this country then had to issue a a warning to any seagoing vessel to stay out of the area of the south coast of Cork and Kerry and that was due to fears of potential rocket debris falling from the sky. Now I've been on air since 10 so I haven't been able to get an update on whether any of of the debris has landed or uh, not but I certainly saw Patrick Murphy on behalf of the fishermen saying they were quite concerned uh, to hear that this had happened and, and they certainly were very worried uh, about it. But I don't know. Um, I'll see if I can try and get an update or if we'll have any update on the news at uh, one o'clock uh, to see if any of the debris has actually landed and if so, where exactly has it has it landed. But certainly any kind of fishing vessels or any pleasure boats were told to stay out of that area and that was issued by our own uh, Department of uh, Transport earlier this morning. 0818 103 103. John Paul taking your calls. You can text WhatsApp 0862 103 103. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie. I just saw breaking on the news wires. This is a little bit of welcome news. This is with regard to Trooper Shane Carney from Killa who was critically injured in the attack in the Lebanon before Christmas. Um, unfortunately, um, saw the um, 
so the death of that other young private, um, Sean Rooney. But um, the, the news, this is the latest from the Defence Forces, is that Shane continues to be treated in Beaumont Hospital. He's responding well and his condition now is no longer critical. And the Defence Forces and Shane Kearney's family wish to thank everyone for all the support that they continue to receive. So thank God prayers have been answered there for young Shane. So let's let him continue on his journey to full recovery. And that certainly will be very welcomed news for his uh, family. Now, this is the Court Today replay on C103. Joe Heffernan uh, joining me. Good afternoon to you, Joe. Good afternoon, Patricia. And you're, you're welcome to the programme. Thank you. Um, I suppose, like, uh, a huge, huge uh, cohort of people uh, far and near, um, we were all, I suppose, shocked and upset to hear of the death of uh, Paddy Palmer. And um, I, I'd just like to offer my sincere condolences to uh, his wife, Colette, and the daughters, Claire and Emily, um, uh, after this very, very tragic uh, event and consequent death. Thanks for that. Yeah, it's still it's still so unbelievable to even, you know, I, I know myself and John Paul, even this morning when we were talking about something that Paddy had done, we're still talking about him in the present tense. You yeah. know what I mean? It's just, it's so difficult. It is so, so difficult. And yeah. and 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 then every now and again, I think of, of Colette and Claire and Emily and, and his little grandson, Lucas, who he was so proud of. And, and I think of, oh my God, you know, we're his work colleagues and, and we're devastated, but my God, what they have to face into the future, you know, their life yeah. without such a wonderful man. Such and there's so many stories coming in about him and you know kind deeds that he had he had done. It's it's incredible. It's just it's it's incredible. Anyway, uh, we're today mm. going to be discuss, discussing dyslexia, and I, I was yeah. reading the notes that, that that you sent in, and this always kind of gets me a little bit annoyed and very frustrated when I hear of you had a phone call from a mother whose son ended up in secondary school before he got a diagnosis of dyslexia. Well, and, and it isn't even a diagnosis yet. It's a suspicion. Okay. But that, um, that, and I've heard of that. I had a really good friend of mine who had been shouting from the rooftops that there was something going on with her boy uh, when it came to reading and writing and she had suspected dyslexia and she mm. was basically being told she was imagining things and oh she was being God. an overprotective mother. And it was yeah. only when the young lad got into first year that it, an English teacher straight away contacted her and said I have suspicions about your boy and she said I've had them for years and yeah. you know they, you can miss out on so much by not being detected early. Absolutely because um, uh, you know when there is a definitive um, uh, we'll call it diagnosis of um, dyslexia well then uh, help is available like longer time in exams or when I was doing student counselling in UCC I met some highly and I mean now very highly intelligent people um, who uh, it had been discovered were dyslexic and um, they were brilliant people. Now, they might get mixed up in their spellings, but they would get, uh, you know, these concessions like the, the, the most popular one was a scribe, yeah. where a person would simply speak their answer to some very complex questions at third level and the scribe would write it down as uh, he or she heard it. And that was wonderful. Another way was um, a computer um, uh, assistance, and another way was a bit of extra time to complete 
um, uh, an exam. Um, so, but you uh, need I to mean, have a diagnosis a, in order for that type of support now, to kick in. You see, that's it. You were talking a little about potholes. And my, um, the thing I always say uh, to parents and otherwise would be that um, you're looking at a pothole, I'm looking at a pothole. We all know it's a pothole. But until an engineer says that's a pothole, it ain't a pothole. Do you know what I mean? I know, I know. Uh, I know. It has to be like, <laughs> it has to be official. Um, so an educational psychologist, um, I do screening tests here um, for dyslexia, um, uh, especially with um, the, the, the likes of the young man now who uh, has just started secondary. And um, you're, to be honest about it, the screening test that I do would indicate usually pretty clearly that there is a problem. But then the person has to get the official assessment by an educational psychologist um, before the department will give uh, the, uh, the, the, the concessions, we'll call them, um, to help the person um, with uh, the system, which, let's face it, is, I mean, really, really based on reading and writing. And I don't know what, what it's like at the moment, but certainly a few years ago, waiting to get to see an education psychologist, there was a massive waiting list. Well, a few people now, quite a few that I would have done screening tests with would have gone privately to the educational psychologist. I usually had um, um, a number and um, and they would get it done, but it was um, very, very expensive. Yeah. The same as all the assessments. And not everyone, not everyone can afford that. Somebody said Absolutely. My, someone said, my son was only diagnosed when he was in junior cert, which is third yeah. year in yeah. secondary school. That's just, yeah. you know, that years, ago, been unusual. years ago when we didn't know about it, you could, it's just shocking to think that, that that is happening today. So indicators of dyslexia, particularly in the younger age group, what, what well, should people look out for? Well, in the very younger age, before we'll say in the in the latest primary school um, uh, area, um, a person who really dislikes reading because they're finding it very disheartening um, because they're not getting the the full story from the reading. It's like a whole number of disjointed words. In other words, like comprehension would be a, a problem. And very often when a person would be a preliminary screening test for dyslexia, uh, one would find that the reading age would be uh, very much below uh, the chronological age. In other words, like a person uh, at, um, what we pick a number, at um, 11 years of age might be reading at 8. Uh, mm. So that would be a very clear indication. Um, mixing up um, letters like um, reversals, uh, especially the likes of B and D, where there's a leg sticking out of um, a, a, a circle, as it were. Um, they get it the, uh, wrong, they get uh, it the wrong way around. Now, that's yeah. very common in younger children when they're learning to read and write. But yeah. what we're talking about is as they as they get on in years and they're, they're moving into third and fourth and fifth class and they're still doing it. That is a, that is one of those indicators. 
Absolutely, absolutely. And um, no child like will have all the indicators we mentioned there. But then more in keeping with the phone call that I got then would be like the over 12s. Um, still reading reluctantly and slowly. Guesses words from the first letters like uh, might, the person might say a minor. Uh, in other words, like the MI at the start. Um, they'd go from there uh, and say maybe um, a different word starting with the same couple of letters. The writing would be poor. Um, uh, it can be difficult to read the person's writing. And, of course, the spelling would be extremely poor. Uh, and once again, like the oral skills would be way ahead of the written skills. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, the comprehension would be poor from the point of view that when the person is reading, it's just a series of unconnected words and each word presenting um, a bit of a problem. So that at the end of reading um, whatever, a paragraph, uh, um, uh, the person would not be able to summarise it, would not have comprehended yeah, whereas, what the message was. Whereas if that was read to them, they would be able to comprehend and retain the information. Oh, not a problem but at it's all. When they, and, not, and the one yeah. thing that we have to point out, and I'm always a pains to point this out, dyslexia is nothing to do with somebody's intelligence level. Absolutely. I remember doing a talk in Bantier Community uh, Hall um, and uh, it was on self-esteem and I never let that talk go without mentioning dyslexia. And I did. And I explained and I read out, I, I, I'll, I'll say a few names in a minute, of famous and successful people who uh, are dyslexic. And um, so I, I went, uh, I, I spoke about dyslexia and I explained that um, if I hear a person is dyslexic, to tell you the truth, my first assumption is that they're highly intelligent. But um, this little fella came up to me at the end of the talk and he said, oh, that's great altogether now, he said. I'm dyslexic and I thought I, I, thought I was stupid. Oh, God help him. God help him. I, I can see, as soon, yeah. as, as soon as we're mentioning it, lots of uh, listeners getting in contact. Both of my girls uh, were diagnosed uh, with dyslexia. Both of them were diagnosed when they were in fifth year, a year away from their Leaving Cert. Yeah. Hi, my son was diagnosed with dyslexia in Leaving Cert. I ended yeah. up having to get him assessed myself. The principal wouldn't accept it because it was done privately. What a battle I had. It was unreal. He ended up going through college, third level education and did really well. But it cost me 700 euros at the time, but it was well worth it to get the private diagnosis. And that's what you're saying. Absolutely. It can be it can be uh, very, very expensive. But I will say my only experience in that area would be when I was doing the student counselling in UCC in Cork. And uh, they were brilliant. The college was brilliant. Um, uh, people really, really got very well looked after. And, um, uh, yeah, yeah, um, I, I, I was very, very impressed with the way that UCC dealt with people uh, who had been diagnosed as dyslexia. I saw another article during the week, I think it was the Sunday papers, I'm not certain now, but that um, dyspraxia apparently is, um, is not coming under the umbrella of um, 
areas where um, a young person can be helped in school. So I hope that will be remedied fairly soon. And what's, but, what's the difference between dyspraxia and dyslexia? Well, dyslexia, as we'd say, uh, very much in layman terms, would be a reading-writing thing, whereas dyspraxia would be, I suppose, uh, a motor skills, um, you know, that... Uh, that maybe the hand wouldn't do what the brain wanted telling it, it to, to do. do. Yeah, and they often can go hand in hand. You can a- a- they often get a dual diagnosis. Absolutely, that yeah. is a fact. That is a fact. But what to come back to what I was saying to you um, a few moments ago, there, Patricia. People who are uh, clearly and uh, well and and recognised as dyslexic. Um, in the acting world, Tom Cruise, Anthony Hopkins. In I, the, heard, uh, I heard Anthony Hopkins give an interview yeah. where he spoke about his dyslexia. And obviously a huge problem for the wonderful actor that is Anthony Hopkins is, yeah. le- is learning scripts. And he said he just can't pick up a script and say, oh, I'll go home and learn this like everybody else. He has yeah. to have somebody to read it to him. And now he's got an amazing memory. I suppose one would He's develop adapted. the amazing yeah. memory. Yeah. And one would develop a very kind of um, visually um, assisted um, uh, way of thinking. Mm. But uh, Leonardo da Vinci, uh, Tommy Hilfiger, Pablo Picasso, the person we all had to learn for the Leaving Cert way back then, William Butler Yeats, who would have thought it? He was dyslexic. Apparently, his first putting down of his beautiful and famous poems would have been very hard to read. Absolutely. Yeah, and Agatha then, Christie. Yeah, I, 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 Richard Branson is another one who speaks Absolutely. very openly. It, and He didn't do too bad. One of the world's richest men. You know, so yeah. I mean, you, you can be an entrepreneur. Yeah, um, Henry Ford was dyslexic. Uh, Albert Einstein. Uh, Muhammad Ali. Winston Churchill, as I often say to people, that's not a bad club to be in. It's not. It's it's no. it's, it's not. And I think <laughs> I think that's important as well for for parents when they're coming to terms with the diagnosis and the children are coming to terms with them. You know, to talk about others that have dyslexia and look, it hasn't stopped them in any way. Indeed, it hasn't. I mean, when you when you look at that list, and there are several others. That's just a selective list of names that everyone would know. Um, oh, yeah. Um, you know, again, to use the same phrase, that's not a bad club mm. to be part of. Um, yeah, somebody says, hi, uh, just in relation to your chat about dyslexia, uh, two sons and a daughter all diagnosed with dyslexia. One of my sons also has the dys- dyscocholia and dyspraxia. They very much come hand in hand. So if you get a diagnosis right. with one, you need to look out for another one. And I made the point earlier when I was teeing up that we were going to be talking about this. I remember being in primary school and uh, w- one of the girls in my class now, in hindsight, very obviously had dyslexia. But of course, it wasn't recognised when I was yeah. in primary school back in the back in the seventies. So, like, she was deemed stupid. Which, God, yeah. when I think about it, the dunce of the class. Um, yeah. She was never asked to read because she could never read properly. She was, you know, her writing was atrocious. God help her. She was only dyslexic, and there was many, when, many uh, you know, many went through. But that's why it shouldn't be happening today. No, indeed, it should not. But it does quite a bit. Quite a bit that, um, as you mentioned there earlier from two listeners, um, one uh, discovered as it were 
uh, to have uh, dyslexia uh, in fifth year and another I think you mentioned in the actual leaving cell yeah, leaving year. Cell class. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. If, yeah. If you have a gut instinct, keep fighting and try to and if you have the money, try to go privately. Okay, we we'll leave it absolutely. We we'll leave it there, Joe. Listen, thank you for that. Have a lovely week. Thank you, Patricia. And we'll chat again next week. That is Joe Heflin who runs the counselling practice in Bohabwe. His number is O eight six eight Three four eight one four five. That's where I leave you for today. My thanks to John Paul McNamara for producing. Nick Richards is with you for the afternoon, and we're back with you tomorrow morning at uh, ten o'clock. Uh, until then, look after yourselves and stay dry because it's going to be a bit of a wet afternoon. Court today on C one hundred three with Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. Want great advice? You know who to talk to. Cmig.ie. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.